I've lived a 30-year life with tons of ups and downs and, uh, and highs and lows. Just as one high moment wouldn't define me or make me worthy of the Hall of Fame, I would hope that also one issue or negative thing that you attach yourself to would, would also not define me. Welcome to another episode of Humans and Magic. I'm your host, James Sue. Today's guest is Reed Duke. Reed is someone who I've respected and admired from afar for a very long time. And it took a bit of time to get him on the show. The moment that Reed agreed to appear on Humans and Magic, the research process started. I started looking into all the things that he had accomplished over the years, all the pieces of great content he had produced, just so much stuff to list. And quite honestly, this was one of the more nerve wracking or nerve or stress inducing episodes that I've recorded, or at least leading up to the recording, because Reed's body of work was just so massive. I also managed to psych myself because long before this interview was going to happen, I believe it was maybe six or seven months ago. I told a good friend of mine, after I get Reduke on the show, there's going to be nobody left. Based on the types of guests that I've had over the years on Humans and Magic, it's been three to four years of doing this show. There's not a lot of people left that I really want to talk to that's really on my bucket list. Now, I'm not saying this to, tr- to offend anybody. I just mean that, I mean, this is Reduke. This is someone who meant so much to me as a magic player, as a remotely competitive player coming up. This is somebody that exemplified and exemplifies, present tense, all of the great things about magic. The sportsmanship, being a great human being, treating others with respect, being a complete student of the game, and being hungry to learn. It doesn't matter whether it's Magic the Gathering or any other pursuit. Reed's values are something that I personally try to learn from and try to apply myself in my daily life. So yeah, suffice to say, this was one of those dream come true interviews. Reed was incredibly thoughtful. He answered every question I threw at him. And I'm just really glad to share this interview with you. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did recording it. Now, before we get started, I just want to mention a couple of things. Chances are, in these times, if you're like me, you're probably stuck at home playing magic or doing something. You might be interested in checking out the Humans of Magic book. It's available on Amazon.com. It has 12 interviews with 12 amazing people in Magic the Gathering. And even if you've listened to the original podcast, there's some bonus content in there that will be interesting. I don't have a Patreon for Humans of Magic. I don't have any any paywalled content. But if you are interested in supporting the show, the best way to do so is just to pick up a copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you. I also want to mention that this podcast is brought to you through the help of our friends at channelfireball.com. 
Channel Fireball is now running online Magic Fests. It's a tournament series that you can participate in as a competitive Magic player over Arena. They're going to be holding a whole bunch of online tournaments, online qualifiers. And if you get to the grand stage, if you get to the final stages, you can even win an invite to the Players Tour. There's daily qualifiers, weekly championships, season finals. They've got a whole thing set up. All you have to do is just go to channelfireball.com or cfbevents.com and you can find out all about their exciting online series. Channel Fireball is doing some awesome work to give you magic during these difficult times when we're all stuck at home. Check it out. Humans and Magic is also brought to you by Cardboard Live. Do you know what else we do when we are stuck at home and we can't watch sports or some of the other things that are normally around? Well, we've got a lot of magic streams to watch. And when you watch magic streams, chances are they're going to be using Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live allows streamers to tell the best possible story based on what they're streaming with deck lists, tournament information, player bios, and a whole bunch of cool stuff that you can set up for free on your magic stream. Whether you're streaming tabletop magic when you're playing remotely, you're streaming magic online, you're streaming magic arena, we've got you covered. If you want to get started with Cardboard Live, which is completely free, all you have to do is email us. Just email me, james at cardboard.live, and we will get you all set up. Cardboard Live is the future. The future is here. Check us out. All of the music you hear on this show is created by Kupla. Kupla is a Finnish musician, magic player, and all-around talent. It's the perfect music to relax and, dare I say, even play magic to. To find out more about Kupla, visit kuplasound.com. That's K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. You can also find all of his music on SoundCloud and Spotify. All right, thank you for making it this far. This is my conversation with Reed Duke. Today on Humans and Magic, I am here with Hall of Famer and member of the MPL, Reed Duke. Reed, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, James. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast and I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm just honored to have a chance to talk with you. And how are you doing in these difficult, trying times? Uh, you know, I think there's a, a bit of stress on on all of us across the world, but uh, I try to keep things in perspective and realize that I have it a lot better than most folks. I mean, uh, me and the people close to me, we don't have any medical emergencies and we're hanging in there financially and everything like that. So, um, you know, it could be a lot worse and, uh, and we're trying to make the best of it. I know that for full-time magic players and content creators, the situation now perhaps doesn't affect you folks so much because you already do not have a standard nine to five, get to the office kind of job so just curious like has it been roughly similar to things before and after other than just being inside all the time or ha have things really dramatically been different for you sure well the the biggest change is of course that the, all the events got canceled you know this is around the time that i'd be 
um, gearing up for the, the regional players tour, the players tour finals, everything like that. Um, so normally my, my job, my uh, regular life is kind of split between the work that I do from home, streaming, content creation, everything like that, and um, traveling to compete. And with all of this uh, shelter at home pressure that that's on everyone these days, I have just been focusing all on, on you know, catching up with getting ahead on my, my work from home type stuff. And, you know, I've looked at it as a little bit of an opportunity to build the stream. And I think it's been good. Um, I've enjoyed, you know, showing up there regularly and getting that, getting my regular crowd and everyone kind of knows each other and, Hey, how are things on your part of the world? How's your family doing? I love to see that, that little bit of community building. That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you have a regular stream going. I see on your, on your Twitter, you've got like regular times. That's really important. You're doing a lot of videos for channelfireball.com and you're playing in tournaments too, right? I believe the channel fireball series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Channel Fireball has been doing the Magic Fest online, which I participated in a bit, did some coverage for. And then also one thing is I love playing the weekend events on Magic Online, um, you know, things like the the Modern Challenge, the Vintage Challenge, Pioneer Challenge. But I almost never get to because I'm, I'm often uh, traveling to compete or, you know, it's one of those rare weekends that I'm at home. So I want to do something with my family and friends. Uh, um, but but I do love playing those events. So I've been, I've been uh, hanging out on the weekends, streaming those, competing in those, and it's been great. Would you say that it's a little bit or it feels a little bit more like back to basics for you? Because I know you came up in Magic through playing online almost exclusively. So And now we're basically all forced to play Magic Online and Arena 100% of the time. So how, how does that feel for you? Yeah, it feels good. Um, I, I have missed it. Yeah, it, it's almost like even though I've been a professional magic player for a number of years now, I never really played as many hours of magic as I did when I was say 20 years old, you know, just, just, just uh, around the time I was graduating college and just playing tons of magic online and trying, trying my best to improve and qualify for the pro tour. And, and yeah, now it's feels like we're back where I can just sort of grind away and uh, you know, iron out the decks the way I like them and play the weekend tournaments. It's been great. Excellent that aspect of it at least <laughs> that aspect is excellent Reed. i thought i would just start off by asking you about a very momentous milestone you had in your career and, and i dare say life let's go back in time to the magic hall of fame induction ceremony you were the sole member of the 2019 hall of fame class brian david marshall introduced you to the stage now we all saw the the video itself but i kind of want to get inside your mind a little bit tell me about what it was like to be introduced by Brian and what that meant to you based on the relationship that you two have had over the years. Well, here's the thing. I am just a huge fan of Magic the Gathering and the history of Magic the Gathering. I've played the game my whole life. For a big portion of that, I've followed the Pro Tour. I've, I've dreamed about the Pro Tour. And BDM, Brian David Marshall, just represents the history of magic to me and I think a lot of other people. And, um, you know, getting to, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with, with him as the MC, it's sort of like, wow, like I have always been a fan of this and now I get to be part of it too. And that was really special to me. Um, and that's not even to mention that that Brian and I have known known each other for years. We're both from New York and, um, you know, he, he sort of uh, – 
interviewed me as I was coming up. He mentored me when I was first getting my start in, in coverage. And Brian's just a great guy. So that, that you know, on a, on a separate level made it pretty special. If we just wanted to spend our, our whole time slot here saying nice things about BDM, I think we could do it with no problem. But yeah, that, that was a really uh, special, special evening. Yeah, what's interesting is that Brian told me that when he retired from coverage, they got a whole bunch of folks to record video segments and one of them involved you. And for some reason, Brian said that they didn't air the segment that you recorded. So can you, <laughs> can you go into detail about what you said there and why they didn't air it? Sure. Uh, I think I said something to the effect of uh, BDM is not the reason that we're all here at the pro tour, but he is definitely the reason that anyone gives a shit. <laughs> so they, you know, they had to, they had to filter it out. Cause I, you know, use some colorful language, but I, I think that's, that's pretty much accurate. Like the pro tour existed, right? It was there for the players who were, who were competing, but BDM, especially in the early days and, and all the way stretching up to the, to the modern era, he was really like putting in the work that made the pro tour feel special, not just to the players, but to, to pretty much every magic player around the world. Um, you know, bringing that coverage alive and, and highlighting the cool stories and, and making it not just about the cards and the deck lists, but also the players and the experience. Right on. And there's another thread I want to explore, which is kind of related to the, to the speech or to the introduction that Brian had for you at the hall of fame, you know, during that introduction or induction ceremony, there are a lot of people in that video segment who said nice words about you. But in doing this interview, I also talked to a few other players who had played with you over the years. And one of them was Jonathan Sukenik. Now, Jonathan is somebody who is from, I wouldn't say exactly the same area as you, right? You're from New York and he's from New Jersey. But there's an interesting uh, memory that he had of you. And I thought I would just repeat it here. I think it was during a Legacy Open during an SCG Invitational and for whatever reason, Jonathan wanted to concede at that point in the tournament when he was matched up with you. I think it was a legacy open. He was running some kind of stone blade list and his memory is really good. He said that he played at the main event at Invitational. He played a, a deck that you ran like blue black control with four Gitaxian probe. And anyway, he wanted to concede for, for some reason when you guys were paired up. And apparently you told him that you wanted to play the match out because you knew that Jonathan gave it his all every match and you told him that you wanted to experience that from him. <laughs> so when I heard that story, so you guys ended up playing. When I heard that story, I was just amazed because I think most Magic players would be very results-oriented, especially when you're, they're playing tournaments, but you had actually wanted to play him instead of, or play against good competition instead of settling for the win. So can you tell me a bit about this mindset just wanting to be challenged there and, and kind of where that comes from. Well, first of all, it, it's, it's really awesome, you know, just as a side note, after all these years to um, be reminded of things like this, where it's like that wasn't a big deal to me, but the things that stuck with, uh, you know, players and their impression of me, that's, that's really cool to hear. And, you know, Jonathan is just awesome guy. I've played with him ever since we were, we were kids, but yeah, the, the mindset I guess is, that, that's the reason that we play. And, and especially speaking for myself, that's the reason that I play is to try to challenge myself and to go up against the best players and try to 
see how good I can be, you know, and um, it's not about the results or maybe I should say it's not all about the results because I want to, you know, I want to win trophies as much as the next person. But the um, the experience of uh, of a magic tournament counts for a lot for me. And um, I think I feel better at the end of the day if I really brought my best and played well and, you know, had good sportsmanship and everything like that, I would feel better at the end of that day than at the end of a day where, you know, maybe I had a good result, but I cut some corners or I didn't play out all my matches or I did a bad job, you know? So, so the point being, uh, I think it's good to not be completely focused on the outcome, but also just trying to be your best and, and uh, challenge yourself and grow as you're, as you're competing, as you're learning. I just found that to be a very maybe surprising and refreshing attitude in that moment in time, because I had expected that a lot of pro players, you guys have put in so much work in the preparation part that it's almost like, you know, you're training for a sporting event. So, you know, once the the thing starts, you're sort of like your instincts or what you have done practice wise kind of all kick into gear. And so at that point, you'd rather just, (laughs) get it all over with but it doesn't really seem that way particularly for you like you actually do want to be learning and and growing as a competitor even during events is that fair to say yeah that's fair to say and you know to follow up on your analogy it's like if you trained for a year for you know to run a race to run a marathon or something you showed up the day of the marathon and the the scorekeeper's like oh you know what we know you're really good. You don't have to run. We're just going to give you the the bronze medal. How's that sound? You'd be like, uh, what? Well, I trained all year. Like I'm, I'm here to run. Like, why don't, why don't you just let me run? And that, that's kind of how I feel too. It's not about, you know, targeting some particular result as just trying to show up on the day of the tournament and, and, and be the best player you can be. Got it. So Reed, I thought I would start off by going and exploring a little bit about your family background as well. There's been so much written about you in terms of where you're from, how you started playing magic with your brother Ian since you were five years old. You probably have had more written about you than the average pro magic player, but there's some things in my research that I felt very curious about. I just wanted to your help to sort of fill in the gaps. First of all, I would very much love to know a bit more about Sugarloaf New York, which is the amazingly named town or city that you're from and that you're still in <laughs> tell tell us what is it like to to live there like what is it just for someone who's never been there what is it like yeah sugarloaf is an eccentric place uh we call it a craft village so the the sort of concept is that most of the people that live here run a store or a business um in addition to, to living and then the main the main drag of the town is sort of like a tourist attraction. People come from New York City to like get this little quaint, uh, you know, shopping experience. Um, and the best way to describe it, I'll borrow someone else's words. Uh, Magic fans will know my good friend William Jensen, but he came to visit me in Sugarloaf, and we were walking down the street, and he said, "Reed, wow, living in Sugarloaf is like being in the first the first village in like a Dungeons and Dragons or a Final Fantasy game." <laughs> Like, I'm going to buy my suit of armor over there from the leather worker. I'm going to stock up on potions from the witch shop. And I was like, yeah, that's that's pretty much a perfect uh, example. It's just this sort of like, you know, it's like the Shire from uh, from from the Hobbit or something like that. It's just like this this uh, 
utopian, like little small town where everybody knows each other. And I feel lucky to, to have grown up here. Is it one of those places where, you know, you leave your front door unlocked and everybody knows each other kind of thing? Yeah, most definitely. Okay. That's very cool. So it sounds like it's can be a bit of a tourism hub as well. Like people want to come, come here for the sort of the, I, I don't know how to describe it exactly. I didn't grow up in America, but like the Americana experience or, or something to that effect. Yeah, it's and it's it's sort of, you know, in um, in today's world of like you buy everything on on Amazon and it's, you know, Walmart and Target and stuff like that. The pendulum can swing the other direction, too, where people really want the experience of like, I'm going to go into a small shop where, you know, there's the guy behind the counter is is the candle maker who handmade all the candles that are in the store. And I'm going to chat with him and stuff like that. And it's really like can be a fun experience if it's the first time you do it. So in the context of this setting, what did your parents do? Like what how do they make their living effectively? Uh, well, my mother does own a shop in Sugarloaf. She owns a clothing store. Um, and then my father w- was a was a carpenter for his career. Excellent. And I believe that you were a jeweler in, in your past or as you were maybe part, working part time. Like, do you do that in Sugarloaf or did you do it elsewhere? Uh, yep. Yeah, it's a it's a jeweler in Sugarloaf um, who had a, a workshop and had formerly owned a, owned a store. And I worked for him uh, part time for maybe four or five years. Describe your parents for me a little bit. You know, you told me about their occupations, but what are they like to you? My parents are awesome. They're just very um, loving and supportive people and uh, accepting. And uh, I think that was that was a big key for me in, in being able to choose this unusual career path is, you know, my parents just, they just sort of, you know, believed in me and believed in me to make my own choices. And uh, even though they didn't always understand or agree with what I was doing, they just, they trusted me to do it, you know? Did you guys have a gaming culture in the family growing up? Because I understand that it was your mother who brought home the starter decks. So I'm trying to understand how that came to be because most people find magic, just they go to a card shop and they, they find somebody playing or their friend introduced them to it. But this is more of a an interesting situation which you got introduced to magic so so what was it like like did you guys have a, a gaming heritage or just fascination for fantasy or what was it like yeah i was sur- i'm surrounded by you know a lot of uh a lot of gaming uh both both my family and friends like we'd have family you know scrabble night at home and stuff like that and even even my, my parents and uh my big sisters who aren't magic players, they, they enjoy games and we, we play, um, you know, board games together all the time. And yeah, just in general, I, I was sort of came up in an environment where not everyone felt attached to the status quo. You know, like I went to a public school in the suburbs of, of New York where at times you can sort of feel like you're being railroaded, right? Like it's like you do grade school, then you go to four-year college, then you get hired to a corporate job, and you know pretty soon you're retiring with your pension a couple decades later. And that's a great thing to do, don't get me wrong. But in my opinion, it's, it's one of many great things that you can do. And uh, a lot of people around me were, were not necessarily you know, buying into that, that, that uh, established path and just kind of open to new experiences and opportunities. And that let me um, feel a more confidence and, and flexibility to do what I want to do. 
And growing up, were you extremely competitive from the get-go, even before you found out about magic? Or how would you describe that, that sense of being competitive and where, where it came from, basically? Yeah, I, I'm very competitive when compared to, like, you know, a typical person that you pull out of the population. As I've, um, you know, met some of the people that are the very, very best magic players in the world, I was like, I, I go, wow, like, I thought I was competitive, but these people are, are really competitive. <laughs> I actually, I have, I have like several modes. Like I'm not afraid to suck at something, to try a new game and just like have fun and be the worst and like not have all the best strategies. But, you know, when I do really decide to, to devote myself to something, to sink my teeth into it, then I do want to like learn everything and be the best I can be. And, and magic really filled that, that gap for me. So it sounds like you're competitive with yourself and wanting to be the best from that angle as opposed to be like i have to beat this person it's more about like i want to learn everything i can about this this particular thing yeah i think that's a really good way to put it like i, I get you know just just with everything i don't care that much about the results i don't care about having the highest number of points at the end of you know family scrabble night i care about just having fun and, and doing my best you know Describe the relationship between you and Ian growing up when you were younger and maybe even before you started playing Magic. Like, what, what was that like? Were you guys extremely competitive? Did you try to one-up each other or did you try to work together on things? What was it like? Yeah, I, I think all, all pairs of brothers have that, you know, competitive, like, try to outdo each other thing. Now, with, with Ian and I in particular, he is five years older than me, which is a pretty big age gap, like you're not really, you're not really going to catch up with someone when you're six and they're 11. Like you yeah. just, that's just not really a fair. They're, they're just like physically stronger than you. And they're like, I guess their intellect yeah. is more developed too. So uh, yeah, just everything. Um, so, so I would say it's more like me trying to like keep up with Ian, not, not necessarily to one up him, but just like, I wanted to, you know, do what he was doing and, and everything like that. Right on. And so that means he was already 10 when, when you found Magic because you were five. And so when you guys were playing, was it... I, I read the stories about how like you guys misinterpreted the rules. Like We all misinterpret rules when we start playing Magic. That's a given. But what was the dynamic like between you two? Like, were, Did you try to win all the time when you're playing against him? Like, Did you try to learn together? Did, did, he, did he take it easy on you? Like, <laughs> What was that like? Boy, um, yeah, I think in the very early days, we were just muddling through, right? You know, like back in those days, you couldn't get the beginner deck. You would literally just get like a fresh pack of cards, shuffle it up and try to play. And it's like, okay, I have three mountains in my deck to try to cast my, <laughs> my red cards. And, and we don't know the rules and stuff like that. So the, in the very early days, we were just trying to, to get through it together. And then pretty quickly, um, my brother got very competitive, as as is sort of his personality, and he he picked up um, Inquest magazine, Scry magazine, started going to tournaments and learning from the better players and stuff. And I was still a bit young for all that stuff, um, so so I was behind. But again, just trying to keep up with him, and he would build like you know the sweet new deck, and then I would be trying to trade for another white knight for my white weenie deck and stuff stuff like that. But um, you know, we, we went through it together. 
Yeah, so he was definitely trying to, not trying to, he definitely was playing in tournaments and stuff before you had. And did any of that rub off on you? Like, did you, even though you didn't play the tournaments as early as he did, did you learn things through osmosis or just from him telling you stuff? How did that work exactly? Yeah, like he, we would go over the basic concepts, things like, you know, how many lands to put in your deck and try to play only one or two colors instead of playing four or five. And, um, you know, have a, have a curve of creatures and don't play with low impact cards like Ornithopter and stuff like that. Those concepts, you know, we worked through and I improved and stuff. But of course, I was not a super competitive player. I didn't have access to all the cards. So I was still a bit behind in that sense. And I was just trying to, you know, do the best with what I had. Did you guys have tournaments in Sugarloaf or did you or, or did you and Ian have to travel to because you said you did public school in the suburbs. Like, did you have to travel somewhere all the time to do tournaments? Like, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but how did you, what, what was the scene like around you? At that time, we were pretty fortunate to have a, a nice local store about maybe four miles, four or five miles from, from where we lived. So very, very accessible, you know, just ask, ask mom or dad for a ride on Sunday morning and, and go play. We, we mostly played at that local level and that was a lot of ma what magic was back there was back then was was the local level there wasn't as much of magic online magic arena the you know the internet community the big the big uh, like regional tournaments that those were fewer and uh, farther between but eventually it came to a point where especially Ian loved to travel to those events and I would go every once in a while when, when I could but yeah it's just we 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 took it slow and steady in terms of that long number of years growing from we opened our first pack of magic we don't know the rules all the way to getting up to being competitive tournament players do you remember if there was a particular point in time where you felt yourself that you had made some kind of leap like it's different for everybody for some of us it could be winning our first fnm i know fms didn't exist back then but taking down our first tournament or beating the older kids in, in a draft or something like for you, what was the first kind of Eureka? Like, Hey, I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing moment. Well, I definitely remember when I built my first good magic deck where I could actually win against the other good players. And that was around, um, Tempest time period. I built white weenie that had, um, all the shadow creatures like Soltari monk, Soltari priest. Those are shadow creatures that have protection from black and red respectively, or uh, red and black respectively. And then you could put Imperial armor, which is really powerful aura on those creatures. And your opponent couldn't block, couldn't kill them. And then you had Armageddon too, which was a really sweet, uh, follow-up card for a white weenie deck. And this deck suddenly I was like, wow, like this is what it feels like to play a really good magic deck. And, you know, I, I had a, a, a good chance of beating anyone that, uh, you know, anyone that wanted to play against me. That was cool. I, I was probably only, I don't know, nine or ten at the at the time, but I felt like I could, I could, I could hang with the older kids. Yeah, yeah, that's very advanced. And I didn't play Magic competitively back then, but I definitely remember Tempest. And uh, you know, my brother and I started in uh, Revised Edition, but we just play casually. So uh, I do remember the cards back then and just buying booster packs, but not actually playing in tournaments so it, it was yeah i remember those cards that you describe very fondly so yeah describe yourself as a student in middle school high school what what kind of a student was reduke i was <laughs> I, I was about to say i was a good student that maybe doesn't tell the full story 
like I, I, it came pretty naturally to me. I think, um, like I could, I could get by with, without doing like a lot of studying and things like that. And then that caused me to get a little bit, um, like complacent. Like, you know, I would, I, I could, if I could get the, the a minus on the test with putting in almost no work then I'd be like, that's good enough. Like, I'm not going to do the reading. I'm not going to study things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe that's, that's part of it is feeling like I wasn't, uh, fully like engaged with the grade school content and maybe magic was, was an additional outlet for that, uh, mental exercise type stuff. I definitely remember like sitting, sitting in science class, uh, were you thinking about magic and just brewing decks in your head or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, my, my, my notebooks would be like two pages of, of school notes and then like 40 pages of like deck list ideas and things <laughs> like that. just sitting in the back of class, not paying attention. Did you have any favorite subjects? You know, what were your favorite subjects when you were going through school? Good question. Actually, it, it totally flipped for me. I really loved um, math and science when I was younger. And again, that stuff just sort of came naturally to me. And then when I became, um, like high school, college age, it, it really, uh, it really flipped. And I started to love like English and writing and actually ironically, um, the, the stuff that I learned in English class, is probably the stuff that I used the most in my professional life, my content creation life, you know, just, just actually putting, putting pen to paper and being able to write something that people are able to to read and digest is is not an easy skill and i appreciate some of the things my teachers taught me did you have any favorite teachers were they related to those subjects or what were your favorite teachers what were they like um yeah i remember one is mr lincoln's the high school english teacher and he was uh he was like sort of the first one who made me feel like wow like actually english class is cool i thought it was just old stuffy like you know Shakespeare plays that everyone just was bored of and wanted to get through but he was like no like actually this stuff's cool like um and and, uh and he he gave me a better appreciation for that and got me more engaged and then that was I think the beginning of it but yeah I mean there's there's a lot of a lot of really uh great teachers in my life to you know too many to, to to mention in in passing here but yeah I I I took a lot from my schooling that I appreciate for sure so it's really interesting in the context of what you just told me, because you were into math and science and you were into English and creative writing and, and things like that. Then how did you end up deciding to study economics at Dartmouth? Yeah, um, economics was, I didn't really have a plan. <laughs> I mean, like, well, no, the, none the, of us do the, when we were like 17, life. 18. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like 17, 18. I was like, you know, I don't know about this, this real world stuff, this career stuff. Like I just love magic, man, you know? So, so, so at a certain point I had to pick something without any kind of clear trajectory for what I want to do after college. And, uh, economics just sort of felt like perfect fit for me. It's like, a, like widely applicable. It's kind of intuitive. Um, it, and, uh, it's, yeah, basically it's not, it's not overly specific. It's like if I was to study art or something that would feel like I wouldn't get the most of that unless I chose a career in art, but I, I found economics like interesting enough and sort of real world applications and, and applicable to a wide variety of careers, including 
some stuff that I learned um, there that I still that I still you know churn through in my head when I when I play Magic. So yeah, it worked out well. Got it. And tell me about how you discovered Magic Online while you were in college. Like, who introduced you to it, and what were the particulars around that? Sure, I guess that would be my cousin uh, Logan, who's you know some Magic fans will know him, Jabberwocky on Magic Online. But uh, you know we we used to just like just shoot the breeze a lot, talk uh, when we were both in college, and, and he was like, yeah, you know, I know you like Magic. I've been I'm really into Magic Online. It's like great great thing to do. And uh, I decided to download it when I was in college and got, got hooked immediately. And that was, uh, I guess, Shards of Alara, Lorwyn draft area. Uh, and I, I just love playing the playing limited there. And then that was also when they first initiated the Magic Online PTQ program. And that was, that was it for me. I was like, wow, like I can actually qualify for the Pro Tour without having to you know, spend a lot of money and take weekends off and travel. Like this is amazing. And I, I try to play almost every single magic online PTQ once those were available. Yeah, for sure. And so how quickly did magic online take over your, your college life? Did you keep going to class? I, I think I remember reading about how this is maybe the final or second last final year of college for you. Uh, so what, what, how did it take over your, your life at that point? I definitely spent a lot of time on magic online, you know, some some would say too much, uh, but yeah, I, I I did okay. I tried to make it a rule that I would miss class. So even if I went on like a late night Magic Online drafting binge and was up till four a.m., I, I just sort of made it a rule like, all right, I'm still going to get up for the seven a.m. class. Like that's that's where I have to draw the line. So I, I held it together, and you know, I was able to graduate and, and be fine. So give me a sense how much magic online did you play back then like if if you could average out maybe uh let's just say on a daily basis like how how, how much did you play i i would expect that you wouldn't take breaks on weekends or anything like that but what was it like well let's start with let's start with the magic online ptqs so back at that time let's say there were four pro tours per year for each pro tour they had 16 magic online ptqs and i would play them all and they would be staggered <laughs> Different days of the week, uh, different, you know, different time zones for for different people across the world. I didn't care. Like if one was starting at 2 a.m. my time, I would I would be up. I would be brewing a cup of coffee and I'd be playing like the nine round PTQ starting at 2 a.m. And that's not even to mention the Magic Online Championship Series events. And then not to mention just my my day to day like practice and, and general general grind. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) as I said, uh, you know, at the start of the interview that I never played as much, as many hours of magic as I did, uh, around that time when I was, when I was really playing a lot of magic online. Okay. So I think that says it all. I mean, did you have any crazy moments that came up for you? Like I I can just imagine maybe you're playing magic at 4am and you just accidentally fall asleep between rounds or something. Like did anything crazy like that happen for you? Well, I think one of Maybe maybe the first PTQ I won, or or certainly you know very very early in that career, the story was my brother and I woke up at you know probably 5:30 a.m., took a shower, drank some coffee, got in the car, drove two hours to Connecticut to play a PTQ, and we played all day. And I think I missed I, I lost the last round to not make top eight, so we drove home disappointed. Got got home at like 9 p.m. or something. And then uh, I just immediately entered the 
online PTQ that was starting at midnight. So that was another seven rounds on top of that. And I made top eight and I won. And it was like 6.30 a.m. or something after I'd already been awake for 24 hours, played two back-to-back PTQs without without sleeping. Yeah. And like that was the first breakthrough <laughs> for me. When You know, same deck both times, of course, where I was like, made, you know, probably changed two sideboard cards between the live event and the online event. But uh, yeah, that, that was it. You know, after all that, like just being alone in my bedroom in front of the computer, it's like the sun's just coming up. No one else in the house is awake. And I'm like, yeah, I just won my first PTQ. This is awesome. Right. So, you know, these days when you talk to younger magic players or maybe when you're mentoring somebody, do you ever share these stories with them? Like, did you ever tell them how you once played 24 hours in a row? And that was, you know, how you became, how you got started as a decent magic player. Well, uh, sometimes I find that when I, when uh, I'm teaching or mentoring or coaching, what's more important is it's more important for people to hear the, the, t- the, about the times that things didn't work out. Cause it's like, okay, like, you know, we know you read, you're in the magic pro league. Like you've, you've had all these great achievements. Like it's been, been easy for you. Right. But what about me? Like, it's hard for me. I'm just getting my start. And to be able to go like, Hey, like actually it wasn't easy for me. Like I was there, I, you know, I felt fell on my ass a hundred times and had to pick myself up and, and, you know, like just help, you know, having these encouraging stories of like, yeah, I went Oh and six at my first pro tour and I had to requalify again and requalify again, requalify again. And when people hear those stories, they go like, Oh, like, you know, that's more like me, maybe I can do this too. So I think the um, the stories from my, my early days that I try to share with people are the ones where it's like, hey, if things aren't going well, don't worry. That's part of the plan. That's part of the path. I think intellectually as magic players, we all understand that. But there are certain players who are better at picking themselves up from the proverbial rock bottom, let's say, and own six at, a, at an event that's very meaningful, meaningful for them. So where do you think that drive comes from for you? Do you think it was innate that you were born with it or was it something that was developed over time? Good question. Definitely a combination of things. And and it probably starts with just, you know, I love magic so much and uh, I love playing even when I'm not winning. You know, it still still tends to be a pretty good experience for me. And, um, you know, like issues of of self-confidence, too, like I I of course feel sad when I work hard and show up to a tournament and it doesn't work out, but I don't necessarily feel down in myself. Like I don't go like I'm such a loser, you know, cause I couldn't win and, and, and not, and that doesn't come naturally for, for a lot of people. And sometimes people have to work at it, but just like making sure that you, you're going to feel the negative emotions that that's just natural. Everybody does, but making sure that you can, channel them to the right places and make sure you're not just moping around going like I stink like I'm never going to be good enough because because that's destructive that's that's what's going to actually derail you so as you were coming up and you mentioned playing with Ian playing with Logan and various people like did you feel that you had a good support network as you were going through all of this yeah for sure um you, you know uh especially like Ian and Logan being a half step or a step ahead of me and me being able to, to learn from them and uh, to use your word from earlier osmosis, like to, to, to kind of take in what they were doing and, and the way they were approaching the game. 
was a big deal for me. And um, uh, while I didn't have like a network of pro players in the early days, I had everything I needed with with those guys and a couple other you know key friends and the the resources that Magic Online offers to just be able to play against all the opponents from all across the world um, at, at, at the click of a button is, is a big deal. I think it's a big secret. Uh, without, without Magic Online, it probably would have been a lot tougher. I'm just thinking about a lot of the younger players today, and I would guess that they probably play as much hours as you did back in your day, maybe even more. Maybe they don't even sleep sure. because they're just, because it's Magic Online, you can always play and, and whatnot. So do you feel like that is a necessary condition of getting up to that level maybe the level that that you got to is is just putting in like i don't even want to say ten thousand hours i'm sure you played more than that like a hundred thousand hours or something like that you know there's certainly some aspect of it and i don't want to be here on your show being like all right kids go home and you know quit school and do nothing but play magic online because that's not necessarily the answer um i really do believe in in quality over quantity of practice. And I think, look at some of the very, very best players in the world are, are folks with, with full-time jobs, with families, like you can make it work where there's a will, there's a way. It doesn't have to be nonstop hours. It just has to be like, you're really taking the right steps to learn and to grow. And, um, so I guess the answer to your question is, is somewhere in the middle. You 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 have to be able to to willing to make some sacrifices and and hard choices and really put yourself out there in order to be one of the best. But it doesn't have to like if you don't have that ability to play 80 90 hours a week like don't don't let that stop you. Don't give up, you know. You you can you can find a way. Yeah, or maybe tailor your goals slightly different. I know you've written and talked about that in the in the past is I guess the way I think about it, maybe as from a software perspective is like what you put in is, or manufacturing is like what you put in is what you get out. Right. So maybe tailor one's goals towards what's actually realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, goals and to be even more specific, like time management type stuff, I, I guess since we're on the topic of like, what do you do if you can't put in those hours um, the best example that comes to my mind is my teammate, Paul Rietzel, who, just like I said a moment ago, full-time job, family, still one of the best players in the world. And part of it is because he has an excellent process and he recognizes his limitations and he says, you know what, I'm going to be busy on these days preceding the Pro Tour, so I'm going to try to pick my deck in advance. You know what, I'm going to have this number of hours to play, so I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to limit myself to trying to master two or three archetypes. And, and, and these are, you know, it's his process, right? It's, it's understanding these things. And if you, if you're only going to have eight hours to practice, like you can't try every deck, you know? So, 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 um, again, just a, a, a case of using the time that you have wisely quality over quantity, these things matter just as much as the raw number of hours you're putting in. Yeah. And Reed, let's talk about sacrifice a little. I feel like the opportunity cost of magic is real in the sense that anything that you really commit yourself to doing in life, you're doing it at the expense of not focusing on other endeavors. So I know it's very hard to be completely objective about one's own life, especially looking in the rearview mirror. But 
what sacrifices do you think you you made in your goal to be or in achieving the goal of being one of the best players of all time? I feel really lucky that I've um, I have managed to live what I consider to be a pretty balanced life. You know, like I have um, I have a girlfriend. I have uh, my family that I stay close with. I have my group of friends that I stay close with. Um, I you know I do other things. I have a baseline level of physical fitness and. and and I do all these things in addition to being a pro magic player. And and part of this, part of wh- why this has been possible is that I actually am a pro magic player instead of one of these people who's, who's trying to work like several jobs to, to make it work and practice for the pro tour. So I've had kind of like every, everything break, right? Every, every resource available to me. And I feel thankful for that. But uh, as you mentioned, of course, there are some sacrifices in all the hours that I, I was Playing magic, I could have been working towards a career or building some kind of other skill or, or anything really. But um, and and it's not been every year of my life that's been this nice, healthy, balanced. T- you know, <laughs> we we talked about those those long uh, hours of like missed missed days of missed sleep and uh, you know showing up to class in college after after not sleeping the night before things like that. So so. I think I've made um, every sacrifice you can think of on like a, a micro level, but I've been able to navigate to a place here at, at 30 years old where I'm, I'm pretty pretty happy and fortunate with where I'm at. Was there a particular point in time when you felt like I'm all in on magic? like, Or did it just happen when you were 10 years old? I, I'm really trying to understand that because like, it seems like you have a fairly well-balanced routine you're you're going through you you went through college you know you have you have kind of set up a backup plan it's not like you completely focused 100 percent of your time on magic so i'm trying to understand the mindset of that were you sort of hedging until you realized i could go all in on magic like how did that work for you exactly yeah that's a good way to put it james i i was i was hedging until until i reached that decision point but yeah i mean there, there came a point where i was like wow I'm playing a lot of magic, you know, like this is, <laughs> this is not uh, conducive to like being super successful in other aspects of my life. If I'm also spending, you know, half my time or more like playing magic. So it, it kind of came to a turning point where I'm like, I'm either going to have to play a lot less magic or maybe play a lot more magic and make it something that, uh, uh, that I can take like personal fulfillment out of and try to reach the pro tour and, you know, maybe make some money out of it if I'm, if I'm fortunate enough. Um, and, and that was sort of the turning point. It's like, do I give this up or do I actually make it worth my while? And, uh, I decided that I loved it enough to, 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 to try to make it worth my while. And, uh, I got lucky at the right times and had the right resources and, um, and it worked out. Yeah. So, so I qualified for the pro tour, um, during my last year of college so that the, my first pro tour would have been a couple of months after I graduated. So that perfect timing right there. And then, uh, for the first several years after college, I worked, I split my time working part time in addition to, um, doing magic related stuff at, at first as a, as a backup, but then increasingly, um, becoming, you know, part of my part of my career and, and the way I earn my income. 
So the all-in moment was a few years after college, it sounds like. Is that fair to say? Maybe right when I graduated, it, you know, like I, I remember the the feeling of like all of my friends at school were sort of applying for jobs, getting jobs, finding their their path in life. And I was like, boy, like, I don't really want to do this. Like, I don't want to take a job that would not allow me to play my first pro tour that would preclude me from from sort of following this this exciting new path in, in magic. So yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted to make it work with the Pro Tour, and I, I knew that it, it it's a it's a long shot, and I shouldn't like make you know I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, burn all my bridges behind me, but I, I really wanted to leave that door open as much as I could. Do you think it was uh, an emotional decision, emotional slash intellectual decision? Because I I would imagine that for someone who is a little bit more conservative, I'm I'm speaking maybe for myself here, it would be hard to make that that leap. So was it a leap of faith for you or did you have a lot of confidence heading into that? I think those, you, you offered a lot of nice words to describe it, but it was probably <laughs> just sort of like a, like an irresponsible decision. Like, okay. you know, this is just what I want and uh, I'm not very good at thinking about the future and uh, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but again, uh, circling back to, we talked about like growing up with my family and friends and like not feeling that pressure that I had to do everything in the established way and that I could take some chances chances and, uh, you know, do unorthodox things. And that, that, that was okay. That's an acceptable way to live life. And that's just what I decided to do. Got it. So Reed, I want to shift gears a little bit. You're a hall of famer, you're a player, but I think a lot of your success and the fact that people know who you are is also like the fact that you've, Built, you created a lot of good content. I, I want to get into the the content creation and being a magic public figure aspect of it. But before before we get deep into that, maybe we'll start with an easy one. What's the weirdest place that you've been recognized, and in what circumstances? There have been a couple of weird ones. Um, you know, servers at restaurants recognizing me. Um, you know, both both at magic events or or, or just totally unrelated. But so, um, some of the weirdest situation where a person recognized me, and this actually happened twice, believe it or not, is I was getting on an airplane to go to a magic tournament and somebody would sort of tap me on the shoulder and be like, hey, excuse me, like, I recognize you. Aren't you Reed Duke? And I'd say, yeah, I am. Like, and then they'd, they'd chat with me like, hey, I've read your articles. Like, oh, I love John, you know, this and that, this and that. And then... Uh, I would sort of like mention in passing, like, oh, like, what are you going to play at the Grand Prix this weekend? And they they go, what do you mean Grand Prix? But I'm like, aren't you tra- aren't you a Magic player traveling <laughs> to the Magic tournament? They're like, no, I'm just a businessman, like th- like taking this flight for work, like totally unrelated to Magic. And I was like, oh wow, you know that's right. That's and then a, they start looking at you like twice. you're all weird, like what's a GP, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, twice it's like I've been recognized going to a Magic tournament by someone who didn't even realize there was a magic tournament like happening, you know? Like, how does that happen? I guess they must have seen your, your face or your appearance in some article or, or video or something, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird perspective, but I guess a lot of people um, engage with magic content, uh, you know, watch the, the pro tours and mythic championships, watch the YouTube videos that maybe aren't competitive players that like, they just go, well, this is my hobby. I want to learn and, and enjoy it. Uh, and I don't really care 
to go to a player's tour or Grand Prix. And there's a lot of people like that. And that's just a totally fine way to engage with magic. Um, and uh, I, I guess sometimes I'll lose perspective of that. What's the most interesting signature on an item that you've ever had to give? <laughs> you mean like the, the strangest thing that I've ever signed? That's right. Strangest thing you've ever signed. That is an interesting question. Uh, I mean, the least strange would be on the cards, right? Because people have asked you to sign parts of their Jun deck, but has there been anything yeah. stranger than that? Maybe plenty of plenty of cards, plenty of play mats. Um, I've I recall somebody having me sign a hat at like the most recent event. Uh, probably like when people like I've had people just ask to sign their their bodies like you know just like sign that, some that's of these where like, I'm getting to that, like I didn't that. want to say that but so they have asked you to sign parts of their body <laughs> sure yeah that, you know that, that, that has happened <laughs> okay like I don't have a card on me uh, can you sign I don't know like my shoulder or something <laughs> yep yeah <laughs> anything you can imagine right on right on I think part of being a magic public figure let's let's just say public figure because you're you're recognizable on a level more than just being a magic player do you feel a type of responsibility or responsibilities towards speaking out on certain topics you know i i remember like mark rosebrotter many years ago wrote this great article about magic celebrity and what it was like for him i would imagine for you you're experiencing a version of that as well do you feel some kind of capital R responsibility towards speaking out about certain topics? And if so, why? Good question. I feel responsibility to the community. And I definitely recognize that a, that a lot of eyes are on me. Um, but the way that I sort of translate that is I want to focus on setting a good example and, and doing the right things like in my own, in my own, life and career and engagement with magic. So uh, I want people to look at me as a leader by watching what I do and saying like, Oh, like I want to conduct myself the way Reed conducts himself and not so much like I'm going to take to Twitter and like tell you who to vote for or what, you know, like that, that stuff I don't feel is my responsibility. And I'm like, it's okay to do that. I know some people do. And uh, you know, maybe I would, if I really felt super strongly about a particular issue, but more, I think it's, uh, you know, people look look to, to me and to us to lead by example, and uh, nobody wants to be told what to do, you know? <laughs> I, I think that's part of being in a, in a free society is, and with smart, cool people is that you, you want to make your own decisions and come to your own conclusions. I, I am wondering, though, because you're such a public figure, do you ever, I, I don't want to equate it to like politics, but it's like, you know, let's say that you're, you're a well-known figure in that sphere. You may feel pressured by certain parts of the community. Like, Hey, you know, Reed, we really like you to speak up more about this and that. I, I, I'm sure you've gotten those types of, let's just call them requests. Maybe, maybe you're, you're like subtly influenced by that. Like, do you ever feel that kind of uh, responsibility to kind of go beyond what you you yourself truly believe to be like, here are, the, here are the things that I want to talk about. I just want to stick to those. Yeah, I mean, there's some pressure. And uh, I think we're talking a lot of hypotheticals, but but this type of stuff it is really case by case. Um, and there are opportunities uh, for, like people say, like signal boosting. You know, like if there's a good cause out there, um, 
a charity or just something that needs a, little, needs a little more attention or something that we can all work together as a community to improve and I have an opportunity to use my voice to, to put that in the limelight, that's great. I'm happy to do that. Um, in terms of more like, okay, so the, the, there's, in terms of speaking up on issues, there's sort of two like ways I can look at it. One is like, hey, be nice to people. And, you know, if I'm going to send a, a tweet like, hey, everyone, remember to be nice to each other. Like, again, that's a fine thing to do, but it's kind of like it's like air, you know, like it's, yeah. it's a little bit phony or like there's not much content, not much substance to that. And, uh, you know, I just that that's something that you could do or not do. And then the other is like uh, like actual controversial stuff, which is sometimes not fun. Sometimes it needs to be addressed. But if it's something that's going to make half the people happy and half the people unhappy, then that's there's like a time and a place for speaking on that stuff. And uh, and, you know, also a time and a place for for avoiding it. I know that we're talking a lot about hypotheticals, but I do want to talk about what you've experienced personally in the past I wouldn't say six to 12 months, you know, when you're inducted into the hall of fame, I think that's meant to be a very happy event for anybody that's going to the hall of fame. I, I could imagine I'd be like beyond the moon. Like I, I'd be jumping up and down all the time. If I got into the hall of fame and I put all my life into, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you put most of your life into magic and competitive magic and you, you are being recognized by the community for that. But I also think there's, it's challenging because there's a lot of armchair critics who tend to see the negative side of things and so can you tell me a bit about kind of your experiences in getting inducted into the hall of fame and maybe some of the 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 challenges you had with certain parts of the community perhaps so what i what i can say about this is um when i when i first started doing magic coverage which is like you know one, one uh, extra aspect of of my uh, engagement with magic I had a really good conversation with my friend Marshall Sutcliffe where he said, make sure you keep things in perspective when you're, when you're engaging with, with, um, you know, with the viewers, with people that are talking about you, if you're in the public and I'm paraphrasing by the way, but if you are in the public eye, there's inevitably going to be a lot of people talking about you. If there's an, if there's a lot of people talking about you, there's inevitably going to be people saying mean things or critical things. And if people are saying mean and critical things, inevitably you're going to read some of them and they're going to make you, they're going to make you sad, you know? Um, so just, just keeping things in perspective. And that's going to be true. Even if you, if you read a hundred things and 99 are positive and the hundredth is, is negative, that's still going to affect you. And, and so it's um, just a matter of keeping things in perspective and, realizing that my stuff is, is reaching a wide audience and not everyone is going to take um, the most sympathetic view of, of a situation. Um, so yeah, just a matter of, of perspective and taking criticism to heart and listening to everybody, but not necessarily like letting it derail you just, just as a lot of um, the other negative emotion type stuff that we've, we've talked about with magic. I think that's definitely an interesting dynamic of the Hall of Fame is that it is a subjective vote. I, I know there's people who come up with these like spreadsheets, like this person had X top eights and this percent finishes. So he or she must be a, a lock for the Hall of Fame. I, I, I know that around the Hall of Fame time, there's voting time. There's always this talk about like who deserves it more than others. So I can definitely see 
the only reason I'm saying this is because I can definitely see people being emotionally attached to certain candidates. And so they also put a bit of themselves into that vote. In, in the same way that a lot of Magic players feel like if I didn't win with a deck or if I didn't win this tournament, this is somehow a failure on me personally, whereas it shouldn't be. People may also feel like I support Reed because this or I don't support him because of that. And so what I'm trying to say is that a lot of these things can be conflated or mixed up where it's like people might end up coming at you as a public figure for something that they feel that they're not actually expressing and they're just they're just uh, sort of externalizing in a way in something else i'm not even sure 100 percent what i'm trying to say here but it's like i know it can be difficult because like it's people's emotions people are not the most rational actors or or beings and so if someone doesn't like what you do like the one out of 100 people there could be a lot of reasons for that is what i'm trying to say yeah, well, one thing that we can definitely say on this topic is you can be a fan or not be a fan of anyone, and that's fine, and you don't have to explain yourself. Like, if you don't like Reed Duke, there's a thousand other, like, totally awesome Magic players that you can be a fan of. And and again, like, you just pick pick who you want to follow, who you want to like. You do not have to explain yourself. And the other side of that is is just, you know keeping perspective from both sides. Like a person like me, I've lived a 30 year life with tons of ups and downs and, uh, and highs and lows just as one high moment wouldn't define me or make me worthy of the hall of fame. I would hope that also one issue or negative thing that you attach yourself to would, would also not define me. Right. And, uh, for, for you personally, like, did you have any, like, learnings in 2019 like if if i were to look inside reed's journal if if such a thing exists what did you say you took out of that whole experience it it all just comes back to keeping in perspective Uh, i think when most of us post on on social media we're thinking hey it's going to be my friends or the people that know me that are that are engaging with this stuff and uh, that was the case for me also, even up to a couple of years ago, um, in this, this past year, there have been a couple of times where something that I, that I said or wrote, it ended up on, wow, like this is on a non-magic esports website, uh, esports news website, like, and it's reaching a, com- a, a completely uh, wider audience than maybe I'd intended. So again, just keeping things in perspective that, that uh, my stuff's reaching a wide audience and, uh, not everyone's going to take the most sympathetic views of situations. Right. If we're talking about content in general, there's so many different pieces of content that's possible today. There's the traditional articles, there's videos, there's doing covers, there's streaming, there's all kinds of things. So out of all the things that you've built in your magic career, what are you the proudest of? I would say uh, the single the single thing that I'm proudest of is the level one article series. This is something I wrote, I think it's back 2014 um, around that time period that I wrote for the, the wizards main website. And the goal of this column was uh, let's take a person who knows the rules of magic and try to level them up to be like a good, strong, you know, PTQ or grand prix player. And it took me 14 months to write the column. And I really took, you know, 
took great pains, attention to detail to write it and uh, tried to make it stand the test of time um, rather than being about like, hey, this is the hot new deck of the week. Uh, more like general lessons for how you can approach magic. And uh, yeah, I was, I was really proud of the way that that came together as a whole. And actually, they still highlight it. It's, a, it's one of the, the or at least the, the, my last known information, it's one of the tabs you can click on on the arena home screen, like links you to, to my work. And that's pretty cool. So I've, I've recently started going through it uh, in doing research for this interview. And it's, it's quite phenomenal. Like I'm actually, I, I remember coming across the series in 2014, 15, but I was not as serious into com competitive magic as I am now. I'm just really amazed by the depth that it went through. And it's just the fact that all of this is, out there for free on the internet like you put a lot of your energy into this like how did that series initially start like did you just have that idea in your head where you're approached by somebody at wizards like how, what was the origin of that yeah i was approached by someone at wizards and actually my predecessor for that column was uh mike flores who's just super awesome prolific uh magic magic writer that that i grew up reading and um yeah, they just said like, "Hey, Reed, we want you to sort of continue, continue Mike's work uh, with the Level One series, and uh, you have this job for as long as you feel it takes you to do the job." And I thought that was awesome. I mean, it, it's it was a really hard job, and I'm not necessarily sure that I would want to do it a second time based on how, yeah, how hard it was, how 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 many hours uh, I had to put into it. Um, but it was really, really rewarding also that I got, that I've spent so many years with magic and learned so much and it's sort of just an outlet for like, let me share this with someone else and, and, and put pen to paper and not everyone, uh, has that opportunity to do that with their, with their career, their area of expertise. So I feel thankful. What's been the best, uh, one or two pieces of feedback you've received on the level one course? Uh, well, it's, it's just always very meaningful to, to meet someone who says like, hey, uh, I, I read your work and either it got me more engaged with magic or it made me a better player. Um, I, it, but in addition to that, I particularly like when people tell me, hey, I was like teaching, you know, my significant other or, what, or one of my family members or, or, or a friend magic. And that I use this resource to help. And like that's. Uh, you know, that makes me feel, feel very good. Cause I'm like, yes, that's what it's there for. You know, like let's get more people engaged with magic and enjoying magic. And, uh, you know, if I can contribute to that, that's a huge win. So this is more of a question for myself than anything else, but at the end of the level one series, you sort of alluded to a level two, because there was an article that uh, a mini article you had at the end where it's like, okay, this is how you get to the the next level. You talked about process and and luck and sort of like more advanced topics. Do you think that you would ever explore that in more depth? Because I, I personally would be very interested in in getting to, to that content. I'm just wondering if you've ever considered making a, a a more like a level two course, as it were. Oh well, that's interesting, and, and you know, thanks for thanks for saying so. Um, the yeah, the 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 thing with the advanced level magic stuff is I think you have to make a lot of the revelations on your own. And that's not to say that other players or content can't help you along the way. 
But um, a lot of it is, you know, the, the, the way the way I tried to end the course is teaching people like how can you get the most out of your own practice and how can you um, not just, you know, play a lot of hours of magic, but actually use those hours to their their fullest effect. And yeah, I, I love writing about more advanced magic concepts. And that's definitely something that I that I intend to do more uh, in the future. Um, but it would probably be less of a structured thing, more of like, these are some key topics that we can sort of touch into and give you some some food for thought. And then you explore them yourself, you know, like the mental game of magic or, uh, you know, bluffing, predicting what's in your opponent's hand. These sort of like really advanced concepts that uh, that there's sometimes no easy answer for. Like a, an article can can explore into them and, and tell, teach you how to approach them. But in the end of the day, you know, James, if you, if you're, if you have a three, three and you're getting attacked by a two, two, like nothing I can write in my article is necessarily <laughs> going to prepare you for that situation. And you're going to have to make a decision on the fly. Right. I, I think you made an excellent point here, which is the level one series is sort of like teaching a person to fish and then you're, you're giving them like the tools, but then the, the, like reaching I'm not religious, but like reaching nirvana or some kind of like higher level realization, like you'd have to come to that on your own, right? I, I think that's what you're saying. I think that's what I'm getting your answer. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's a certain amount that can be explained to you, and a certain amount that you have to, uh, you have to learn for yourself and develop your own instincts for how to approach situations, and that's what what's so great about magic and what keeps people engaged even for you know, as long as I've been playing the, the game, which is over two decades. Yeah. It's also a question that I was interested in asking because I've had this conversation with several content creators. I think the sense that I get from a lot of the content creators is just that the mainstream magic audience doesn't really want to or would be able to absorb a lot of the advanced topics. Like, you know, you would see things like, uh, I would see things like Matt Sperling's, uh YouTube channel, like magic for advanced players. And I'd be like, this content is amazing. Like why, why isn't everybody talking about this? And from talking to other content creators, it seems like most people just want to know, like, what deck should I play for the FNM? What's my cyborg guide? And you know, I, my word's not yours, sure. like the more surface level stuff. So that could yeah. also be a thing too, is like, there's not as much of a readership or an audience for that. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, to, I think you, you gave the perfect uh, example or metaphor for that a second ago, which is teaching a person to fish versus giving a person a fish. And, you know, almost all of us, we go to the supermarket, we try to buy a fish. We're not going to the supermarket so that someone's going to teach us how to use a, use a fishing pole so we can do it ourselves. So I think, yeah, like you said, the, the, the very like instant gratification, easily digestible magic content is like, what is the new deck of the week? Like what's that secret sideboard card that's going to give me, you know, an easy like leg up against my, my, my competitors, that stuff's easy uh, and appeals to everybody. And then um, the, the more advanced stuff that you mentioned and highlighted, uh, you know, Sperling's really cool YouTube series. There, there's also definitely a market for that. There's a lot of players that love that stuff but it is more of a niche market. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't get quite the number of clicks as like, you know, this is the, the winning deck list from the last tournament. I also want to talk about another piece of content that was very 
that you've created that was very personally meaningful to me. I, I have to preface this to say that I'm a huge legacy and vintage enthusiast. And so I believe I was actually at this Grand Prix. People have affectionately called it GP Reduke. And that was, and for just a setup for those who uh, may not have seen this, is you actually played the tournament mic'd up. And every round, uh, you would actually talk through what you were doing and provide like sort of uh, post-mortem analysis. And it was like a first person journey through the tournament as Reduke. I personally loved it. And I'm wondering like, how did this idea come about and how exactly were you involved in this project basically? Well, first of all, thank you for the, you know, those, comp those compliments. I'm glad you really liked the event. I thought it was a, it was an awesome, um, Awesome event, awesome idea, and actually the finished product worked out probably better than we could have expected. But I'll tell you the story behind it, which is I had been slated to be on the coverage team for Grand Prix Richmond pretty far in advance. You know, they set these things up se several months in advance. And I said, yes, you know, I love the opportunity to, to work on coverage and cover Legacy Grand Prix. But the way things shaped up was it was getting real, real near the end of the season. And it was a very, very close race for the player of the year with uh, Luis Salvato, Seth Manfield and myself. So I, I emailed, um, I guess the guy, the, the person in charge was Rich Hagon. And I was like, oh, Rich, like, boy, I'm really sorry to ask this, but it's like extenuating circumstances. I, I, I feel like I really want to play in the Grand Prix to give myself a chance Um a chance to be the player of the year. And uh, Rich called me back a few days later and he was like, well, you can definitely do that. And if you just want that to be the end of it, that's fine. But here's this other idea that I cooked up that maybe would work too. And th that was the, the um, initiation of this, this cool like hybrid project where I, I got to be both on the coverage team and uh, play the Grand Prix. And it was awesome for me. I mean, it was, was really challenging and exhausting of course, you know, just playing a magic tournament, even alone with no extras can be really exhausting. Um, but it was also uh, a way that I got to have my cake and eat it too, in terms of bo uh, both playing the event and being on coverage. And I think we got to show the viewers some cool insights that maybe would have been glossed over uh, otherwise. What was something about doing GP Reduke that actually surprised you maybe as you were heading i mean there's obviously the things like it's more tiring than i expected or it's more mentally taxing than i expected but were there other things that surprised you just kind of looking back on it just the reception i mean for me i thought like okay this is going to be just another grand prix where maybe i get a few more feature matches but you know like you brought it up in this interview right now it's several years later and i still get people mentioning to me all the time that they, they go like, that was my favorite, you know, magic tournament to ever watch. And I, I really did not expect that uh, level of positive reaction. And in particular, what people really seemed to enjoy was they got to get the feel of what it's like to compete in a Grand Prix. So, you know, if we watch a YouTube video of a feature match, we get to watch high level magic, but we don't feel like we're there. And, and when people said that, uh, when they got to hear, you know, my microphone and my conversations with my opponent, even just little stuff like small talk before the match or, um, 
you know, dealing with stressful situations, including time ticking down on the clock that they, you know, they, they, you really got that extra level of sort of immersion in the, uh, the Grand Prix experience. And, And I did not expect that to shine through quite as successfully as it did. And I did not, I, um, I've been, uh, you know, some, in some cases overwhelmed by the, the positive feedback people gave. Yeah. I mean, if I may, I, w- I would say that I understand now that it kind of came about through circumstance. Like you were, it was sort of like a pressure makes diamond or pressure breeds creativity situation where you had, you wanted to play, but you also wanted to do covers. So you kind of like, or, or rich in yourself, like you guys created something, but that thing ended up being like so ahead of its time to the point where it's like, I'm looking back on it and I still feel like that like coverage has never gotten better than that point in time, at least for me. And I'm just saying for me, because I'm a legacy enthusiast, but um, there's also things about the the event that I love, like the table talk. Like uh, I think after your match with, uh, was it, was it Shota or was it uh, another Japanese player? Like you were talking, like he asked you like, was it wrong for me to like be on the draw in this Grixis Del- Grixis controlled mirror? And it was like, that's awesome. It's like, where do you ever like see that in a, in coverage? Right? Like you might like, if, if I'm watching you stream, like you're not talking to your opponent in the same way you're talking to your audience. So it's like, I feel like it was so ahead of its time. And I, I just feel kind of sad in a way too, that no one's ever like replicated that since, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. You know, th- that's the question that, that, people always ask me when they talk about this event is, well, when are you going to do it again? And, uh, it, it, it could be done again, you know, it could be done with, again, with me or with any of a, a million other like awesome magic personalities. Um, in some ways it felt like the stars kind of aligned for, for that to work out. Uh, I mean, first of all, just it being exciting with the surrounding player of the year race. Um, I was very well prepared for that event. So I, I felt like I could, um, talk about my deck and my sideboarding plan. Well, it also just, it worked out really well that I actually made it pretty far in the event. Cause of course a huge portion of the time you enter a grand prix, it's like you're done in a few hours. Like you just lose, you have a bad day, you're done. That could have easily happened in that event, but it didn't. Um, you know, it turned out I was, I was still playing in a relevant way all the way up to the last round of Swiss. Um, so it, it was, um, it really like the the stars aligned for a lot of stuff to be very very cool about the way things broke, and we could definitely try to replicate it. And uh, I think it's it's something that if you ever are able to uh, bend the ear of someone on the coverage team, you could mention it. Uh, but there's also no guarantee that it would it would come out the same way. So I I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's a cool idea to revisit um, maybe someday. But but who knows. Let's talk about your stream a little bit. I th- I think the one thing that I enjoy about that type of content is just, it, it is a, I mean, it's probably the closest thing to GP Reduke without GP Reduke. And we're getting it several times a week, which is really getting in, inside your, your thought process. So tell me about your journey as a streamer and how, what are the things that you've learned now that maybe you didn't know when you first started? Uh, well, I guess I'll take those, those in, in reverse order. Um, the, the, the thing that I, that I learned, um, that, that was not obvious to me at the start is how much it's about community. It's not just about like, Hey, I'm here, I'm going to put on a show and then I'm going to end the show and be done. It's more like people develop the habit, um, of showing up the same people show up in the chat. They get to know each other. It's, it's sort of this like community building thing. And the number of people who, who um, 
say to me like, oh yeah, like I, you know, I, I, I watch your stream every day during my lunch break at work. And it's like part of my routine that helps me get through the day, things like that. That that's really, um, su surprising to me. And, and I think what's, what's particularly cool about it. Um, now the other part of your question I think was, uh, just like sort of how do I approach streaming? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm extremely aware because I watch streams my, myself that there are a lot of awesome streamers out there that are streaming magic or other games or anything. So the, the, the audience is fragmented. There's a lot of great choices. So in always in my head is like, how can I make myself special or unique to, to, to be uh, attractive to viewers? And, you know, I'm never, I'm not going to be the the most entertaining or the funniest, most charismatic or like anything like that. Like there, there are people that are better than that at that stuff than I am. So I think what I try to make my niche is, um, is that I, I try to like have a focus on learning and, and trying to explain what I'm doing in uh, a way that can be digestible for players at, at a variety of levels. So, you know, you can, you can get anything from like, the very basics of like, oh, you know, this hand only has one land, so I'm going to take a mulligan. If you're new to magic, that stuff's, that stuff's helpful to you. All the way to like, wow, like I have a prediction that my opponent is has this card in their hand, so I'm thinking about playing my cards in an unusual way to play around it. And, and then I think the, the higher level players enjoy that stuff as well. The one thing I really enjoy from watching your streams and videos is that I think how you play even in a setting where there are effectively no stakes is that you do take the time to think through all the decisions and you try to verbalize why you're doing it so that someone watching the stream or video can learn from that because i think it's very easy for i'm not going to name any names but there are there are probably some magic streamers out there who are just like i feel like i have to stream eight hours a day uh five days a mm -hmm. week and i just kind of just you need to phone in because like I've already had results. So people will just show up, but I feel like what you do that is really aligned with your values. I dare say is that you actually care about every match of magic as in I'm here. So I might as well try to learn from this and I might as well try to share something with you so that you may learn from this. Would you say that's a reasonable assessment? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I don't have, to, I don't feel like I have to win every match of magic that I play, but it does bother me if I'm just doing a bad job. <laughs> so, so even at low stakes events, uh, or when I'm playing high volume, like I do try to play well. And one thing about the, you know, my approach to magic, the way I play the game is, is I really try to focus on attention to detail. Yep. And that's something that I think can be lost, especially with, um, you know, Magic Online and, and to even a greater degree Magic Arena, it's like very fast paced and, you know, let's just play our cards and then and, and see the explosions and, and get the game over with and then fire a new game right away. And I try to sort of like turn the clock back on that, the other, other end of the spectrum of like, hey, let's actually take a moment, let's think about the land we're going to play on turn two and, and what it might tell our opponents or how it's going to sequence the next couple of turns. Like this decision that Probably is not going to determine the outcome of the game, but it's you never know, and it's worth paying attention to. And uh, paying attention to these subtleties can can big, be a big deal, and they really do add up when you're trying to play high level magic. Yeah, and I think that's great because it's a reflection of your 
level one series. I remember one of the parts of that was like everything matters, right? Every land you play on turn yep. one, turn two matters. Like I think you had an example in the series about you named an arbitrary color with this with some effect, and then it it the because it had protection from that color, the enchantment slid off or the aura slid off later, and you lost the game. And it's just like there's so much that goes into every match of Magic, which is why we all love it and. I think it's great that like you're so competitive with like wanting to do the best for yourself, even at those kind of stakes, right? Yeah, exactly. It's 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 just about um, you don't know which decisions are going to be very important and impactful to the outcome of the game, so you might as well treat them all like they're going to be important and impactful to the outcome of the game. Yeah, so Reed, if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you just a couple of uh, rapid-fire questions. These questions are not re really related to each other, but I thought I would just pick from a, a few of these and uh, have you answer them. Does that sound okay with you? Yeah, I can try to do my best. What can you learn from someone based on their favorite cereal? And what is your favorite cereal? It's a two-part question. Hmm. Well, uh, I'm on record that I like to make a, a nice, like, kind of fancy oatmeal every morning with fruit and nuts and stuff like that. Like a m nice, robust meal give me energy for the, for the day. Uh, what can you tell about someone for their favorite cereal? I guess you can tell, like, um, you know, excitement level versus, like, how conservative or, like, uh, how, how much care they have to their health. Somebody's going to eat a sugary cereal versus, like, an oat bran kind of thing. So you can sort of get a glimpse into someone's personality based on, how lively or exciting their breakfast cereal is. How do you keep your composure during the heat of competition? Because for those of us who don't know you very well personally, it just seems like you almost never tilt in any situation of magic, whether it's the PT or streaming. Like, what's really going on there and how do you keep your composure? Hmm. Well, people often ask me, like, how do you not get nervous when you, when you play these high-pressure events? The fact is, I get nervous all the time. Um, it, it, you know, even even this far into my career, I, I still get equally nervous. It's just more that I have the tools that I need to to play through that and not let it get to me. Uh, but in terms of tilt, yeah, it's just um, it's just about making sure that the negative emotions don't derail you, and uh, also just understanding that it's it's part of the game like your opponent's gonna draw a good card you try to protect yourself from that if you can and uh you know if you can't then sometimes you're gonna lose when they top deck the the fireball on, on the key turn or whatever it might be um and and that shouldn't make you upset because it's just part of the job description and and if you if you get uh, bent out of shape every single time it's gonna you're not gonna last long <laughs> How does it work for you now personally? Let's say it's the biggest match of your career and somebody top decks that fireball. Do you feel upset, but then you figure out a way to overcome that quickly based on experience? Or do you have you trained yourself to just not have a feeling at that point in time? Well, I think the key, which is something we, we, uh, we talked about earlier in the show, is not being so attached to the result and more attached to the process. So I'm going to be way more upset with, uh, if, if I made a bad decision, like if I did something reckless that caused me to lose versus, you know, if it came down to the card my opponent drew on the final turn, which I have no control over and 
you know, if I'm, if I'm in that situation a hundred times, maybe 50 times I'm going to get lucky and 50 times I'm going to get unlucky and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it can be tough when it's a, it's a match that really matters a lot to you, but you just have to, again, realize that it's part of the job description. It's not a reflection necessarily on you as a player and you just do your best and roll with the punches. What's it like to work with team ultimate guard? Oh man, my teammates are, uh, you know, some of the best thing that's, that's, that's happened to me in my magic career. Um, just players that are, that are so good and have such a diverse and, um, you know, powerful set of skills and getting to learn from each one of them in a, in a different way, um, has allowed me to grow as a player. And that's not even to mention just having this great network at, uh, and resources to uh, help prepare for upcoming events. Like if I have a tough question about uh, the deck that I'm working on, I can turn to William Jensen or I can turn to Andrew Cuneo and, and, and ask for their help on a, on a tough decision. And that's, uh, that's just great to have. Are there aspects to being a sponsored player? You know, it could be uh, Ultimate Guard, it could be Channel Fireball, it could be a number of sponsors. Like, is there something that Magic players may not know about being a sponsored player that that you that you like to share? Like, it could be anything, but I'm I'm just wondering, like, what kind of responsibilities and and other sorts of things come with being a sponsored player in the public limelight? Well, I think. You know, people have this perspective that it's just all about money, and um, the the correction or the thing that I'd add to that is that it's it's just another aspect of your job and another thing that I want to do well at. So when I take on a new sponsor, first of all, I don't do that lightly, and second of all, I want to be the best representative of that sponsor that I can be, and I want to have a relationship that makes both of us happy and proud to work together. And, uh, you know, even though I've, I've been sponsored by a number of different, uh, companies or websites over the course of my career, like I just try to do my best job with each one. And, you know, I, I used to work for star city games and I, the, even though I don't anymore, I still value that. Like I was, you know, I, I hopefully was a good representative for star city games and I can take that like sort of knowledge with me as I go or when I go to a new sponsor or when I go to a new, um, you know, fan base or audience base. This is a hypothetical question, but let's imagine a world where there are no tournaments anymore. Uh, I guess right now there are no paper tournaments, but let's imagine a world there are no, there are no tournaments of any kind paper or digital. How would this have impacted your decisions as a college student who just started to get into magic with magic online and how would it affect your decisions now uh, you know the Kurt the reduke circa 2020 um well i wouldn't be here if it, if it wasn't for the uh the pro tour um we talked about that moment where i was like i have to either basically quit or or dramatically reduce the amount that i'm playing magic or i have to go harder and make it something that i can take personal like fulfillment out of and that a lot of that came from the pro tour. Like, uh, it, you know, there's been a lot of changes to uh, the organized play structure these last couple of years. And one thing that's just super, super important, you'll hear people use this term, is the aspirational path. So it means that the pro tour, it's not just for the players. 
you know, you can substitute players tour, mythic championship, whatever high level event you're talking about. It's not just for the players that are there. And it's also not just for the viewers that are at home. It's this infrastructure that sort of gives legitimacy to the game and teaches people like, Hey, this is something that's worth devoting your time to and, and getting better because this is something that can help you grow as a competitor, as a person, it can help you um, compete against other great players from across the world and, you know, potentially earn some money if, if that's, if that's a part of it that's important to you. How do you feel about the aspirational path that is offered today by organized play and wizards of the coast? There's a lot of, uh, a lot of shakeups, a lot of emotions over the last couple of years in terms of uh, the organized play structure changing. And uh, I think a lot of people had a bad stretch of months where the system was in flux and we weren't really sure what was going to happen. And some people felt left behind. I think we've gotten out of that. And I think that the structure that was proposed for 2020 was, was a great one. I really like what they've done with the regional, um, regional players tours, feeding the pro tour, the players tour finals. I really like what they've done with separating the arena path from the uh, paper tournament path. And of course, you know, some of this stuff has been derailed by extenuating unpredictable circumstances with the, uh, the global pandemic, but hopefully we get back on track and I'm very, very optimistic for uh, the future of magic and the future of organized play. And I really like what the, the track that we're on right now. How do you feel about the state of mid-range strategies in magic circa 2020 and how do you feel that has evolved from you know even a few years ago or maybe even before 2019 well um you know mid-range is of course my preferred way to play magic i really like to attack and block i like to have removal spells i like to play longer games mid-range can kind of give you every experience in in, in magic and i think that's cool um now i think the way standard develops is you get to have that mid-range experience a lot. You know, even if you're playing a relatively aggressive deck, a lot of times you sideboard in uh, in a way that gives you more like well-rounded game plans. Same thing is true. You're playing your blue-white control deck, but you sideboard in your Archon of Sun's Grace and you play a little more tap-out mid-range game. So things, you know, all, all the decks sort of have elements of mid-range and sometimes can... Uh, can converge into things being being more mid-range after sideboard. And that's cool. But the awesome thing about Magic is the variety of formats that you can play. I've been playing a lot of Pioneer, Modern, Vintage lately, and uh, the fact that you can get these totally different experiences and play these wacky, you know, turn one kill combo decks or uh, lock you out of the game prison decks in the older formats. Um, and then that's not even to mention booster draft and sealed deck. I think uh, mid-range is, is one great experience that you can have in Magic, and you'll get a lot of it in Standard. Um, but the great thing about Magic that can, that can help keep your attention for a long span is, is the variety of formats that are available to play. Do you have any specific goals that you're willing to share for yourself, maybe in the next uh, three to five years? It, it could be professional Magic, or it could be otherwise. Boy, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that I'd hope to do in the next three to five years. In terms of magic, um, I want to continue or or expand on my role as like a, uh, a teacher, you know, a mentor resource that can be there for, for newer players 
um, to come up and grow. Right now, I, I'm still fortunate to have my status in the Magic Pro League, and I'm definitely not taking that lightly. I want to. I'm still, uh, even after all these years, really, really valuing the ability to compete against the best players, and I want to prove that I deserve to be here and that I can still hang with uh, you know the younger, sharper players that seem to be winning all the events these days. Um, and in terms of a specific goal as a player, you know, I want to get back to the world championships. I want uh, I, I want to be the world champion someday. That's the pinnacle of magic achievement. It's something I've never done. It's something that has um, even more emotional weight for me since I did come uh, runner up one year back in 2013. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be pro- presumably a, a while before the next magic world championships, but I'm hoping to be there. Excellent. And the last question I'll leave you with is... There's always these questions about what would you tell yourself if you go back in time? I'm going to flip that around a little bit. So if you look at yourself today, look at yourself uh, whenever we're recording this in April 2020, what is something that you might tell the future Reduke that you don't want them to forget that you're holding on to right now? Let's say that if you go, go forward in time five years, you, you don't want you know 2025 Redukes to forget something. What is something that you're holding on to right now that you absolutely do not want to forget about don't lose the passion man i mean don't don't let magic become a a chore or something that you're just doing for money like continue trying to be the best person you can be focus on being a player even though sometimes being a player is not the most financially lucrative way to engage with magic and just yeah i mean just just uh keep appreciating the joy that uh, this game can give and hopefully sharing that with as many players as, as are willing to try it. Excellent. Reed, it's been a tremendous pleasure talking today and I thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, I wish you all the best and uh, look forward to seeing you next on your, your stream or video. Yeah. Thanks James. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and invite me to be on your show and thanks to you and thanks to everybody who listened. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans and Magic. To get more information about the show and to join the mailing list, please visit humansandmagic.com. And don't forget, the Humans and Magic book is now available on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. We'll see you next time.